0: Welcome, everyone. It's a wrap with wrap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. Today, we are so pleased to have as our guest, Jeff Johnson. Jeff has experienced compound loss, first his 23-year-old son to fentanyl poisoning in 2016, and now, most recently, his wife of 21 years to addiction. But Jeff is living undeterred by loss, doing what he can to change the narrative in this country when it comes to mental health, overdose, and addiction. Jeff is launching the Living Undeterred Tour this spring, where he hopes to raise awareness and bring people together, all working toward a common goal. Jeff has written a book, This One's For You, the story of one family's struggle through addiction and their journey to find inspiration and meaning in the face of death. Jeff also writes a blog and hosts the Living Undetoured podcast. Welcome, Jeff, to the podcast.
1: Hey, Ron. Thanks a lot. I'm happy and honored to be on. It's a wrap with Ron Rappaport. Well, um, you are you are so kind. It's, it's
0: a pleasure <laughs> to have you. <laughs> no, uh,
1: this going to be this could be a, a good experience, and it's always enlightening to meet new people too.
0: Well, thank you, and, and our audience is great, and uh, this is a subject that I'm sure a lot of people are going to be interested in, Jeff. What was like life like for you and the family before that memorable day in 2016?
1: Wow, that's a great question because uh, it is kind of a line in the sand. There's the the Jeff before uh, 6.30 a.m., 10, 4, 16, and then there's the Jeff after. And uh, what I was like, Ron, was this. I was at the time I was 50 years old, uh, started an investment company at the age of 23, uh, built it to a firm of about $700 million under management, which is get, get us bigger than most banks in this area. I uh, had nine advisors and seven full time staff. I was healthy, happy, married, three kids pretty much had it. I'm 50 years old. Uh, I had reached kind of that pinnacle that you you try to get to when you're younger. Sure. But, but like everybody, every family, there was underlying cracks. You know, uh, we had addiction problems with our oldest son. Um, Seth was prescribed Adderall at 16 and that really kind of hastened his journey of, uh, the addiction and substance abuse, uh, spiraling descent into his own personal hell. And, um, drug us down with him for six years. And we tried everything, uh, started with alcohol. I mean, sorry, Adderall Then it went um, marijuana alcohol. And then by 18 or 19, then cocaine. And then he was arrested for drunk driving, arrested for some other things. All this is chronicled in the book. Um, and then he was incarcerated in prison, uh, at 22, he went to prison for something. And, uh, we thought that was it. We thought rock bottom had been had. And a lot of times they'll tell you in alcohol and substance abuse and recovery that you got to hit rock bottom. Well, right. we were hoping my wife and I, that this was rock bottom for Seth. And I was in Florida, actually in Clearwater, uh, got a call, uh, that my lawyer said, Hey, I got great news, Jeff. We got Seth out of prison. And I turned to my wife at the time. And I said, this is terrible news. And within 60 days, he was dead. And what happened was on October 4th, 2016, um, I got the call every parent dreads the call you get when you join that club that you don't ask to, to join and you certainly can never leave. It's the club of losing a child. And so that day everything changed for me and my life came crumbling down. And not only did I have to figure out a way to tell my wife that our son died, I had to then show strength as the, you know, as I don't want to, I don't want to sound uh, in this day and age, you gotta be careful how you word things, but kind of as the man of the house, that's kind of how I grew up, you know, it's my responsibility right, right. On my watch on my sure. watch is I had to protect the rest of the family. I had to try to save my wife and myself and then my two boys. And the day that, um, the day that the boys came home, so Ian was 15 and Roman was 13 when their older brother died. Right. And, um, the day they came home, I, I had to figure out a way how I could make this A very important life lesson for all of us. And I struggled with it. And I called my dad. My dad's a doctor. And I said, Hey, dad, how do I tell the boys that their brother's dead? I didn't say it in that context because I was an emotional wreck. Sure. And my dad said, Here's what you do, Jeff you tell them the truth and then you shut your mouth. And he said, That's the key. Stop talking. He goes, I know you like to talk. You're going to want to explain everything. Let them ask questions. So I did. The boys came home. I sat him down. I said, Boys, I got terrible news. Your older brother is dead. And my middle son, Ian, goes, Dad, how'd he die? Drugs? Because they'd been along on the journey. And I sure. said, I said, yes. But I didn't say anything. And you could just, you could hear, you could hear the tension. Not yeah. feel it, but you could hear it. And both of their eyes just swelled up, and so did mine. And I just I just thought to myself, okay, here you go, dad. You know, this is your shining moment. This is, this is what you've been working for your whole life. This is the moment that what comes out of my mouth next is going to frame how we live the rest of our lives. And I tell you, Ron, I didn't rehearse this. I don't know where it came from. It's a chapter in my book called the two roads. And this is what I said. I said, boys, we have two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred. We'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves, or we have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this can be the single greatest event in our life to make our lives better and those around us. I'm on the second road and I ask you to join me. And wow. That's what I said. And that's what I said. And I swear I said it that easy, that rehearsed, but I'd never rehearsed it. I wanted to be very spontaneous with the boys and very authentic. Yeah, And I took my dad's advice and I, that's what I did. I shut my mouth, but then I just, after a few seconds that came out and that two roads metaphor became a pivot point in in our family and certainly in my life. And that's where in the book, I talk about the two roads, my nonprofits called the choices network. And I wanted a nonprofit that embodied the decision-making process. In other words, choices precede consequences. So I didn't want to be sober living or anti-drugs or don't do this or don't do that. Right. I wanted to be something that held you, you are accountable for your choices and get away from this victim mentality that we have. And and so that, that was my nonprofit, kind of came out of that two roads idea. And so that's what we did. And then really right after it happened, Ron, I, I went straight downhill. My wife and I just, you know, basically thought. The way to grieve was to get drunk. And I was already an alcoholic. I've been drinking since eighth grade, um, six, seven days a week, which is amazing how I could be so successful in business. But but be an alcoholic, which as I find out later, is pretty common. You were functioning. And, you were functioning. Yeah, functioning and and yeah. but I was deteriorating. I was 190 pounds yeah. I'm one forty-nine now. Um, and I ate poorly, I didn't sleep well, my stomach hurt, I had headaches all the time, but I was making money and who care, right? And uh and now I lost my son. So on December 24th, 2017, that was a really important day for me. That was an epiphany moment where I woke up from a bender with my wife. And at that time, I just said, this is it. I'm done. I'm tired of being tired. I'm drawing the proverbial line in the sand. Right. And I quit. I quit drinking. And I will, I will tell you, Ron, I primarily quit to help my wife because my wife was both of us were really going downhill quickly. And she was literally drinking herself to death. And I thought, well, I can, I can quit. I can't get her to quit, but I certainly can quit myself. Sure. You know, you have to control what you can control. Right. And that's what I did. And as it turned out, it was easy. I've never struggled with going back to drinking. It's, it's been arguably one of the easiest things I've ever done in my life. And I write and I talk about, I'm trying to change this stigma where alcoholics feel so captured and so imprisoned by this disease approach that, 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 say, it's true. You don't, you still don't have to believe it. And I've got a saying I like to tell people is that you're always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. So whatever you're told you are. So the doctor told my son, Hey, you're going to be a werewolf at midnight. Here's a pill. It's called Adderall BS. I call BS on that. And so now someone says, well, I'm an alcoholic, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And then every day I torture myself with thinking about alcohol. Again, I, I'm just for me. I'm not going to play those narratives. So I just decided I didn't want to drink and I quit. Now I know I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. A lot of people can't do that. I'm a very compassionate on that aspect. But I think more people out there are like me. They just got to find a why. And you're going to say, "What's your why?" You bury your child. You can't find a why out of that. Yeah. Then you're you're a sorry soul. You're a sorry soul. You need you need a lot of help because that should be plenty of motivation. Now unfortunately uh for my wife it wasn't and she continued and I tried to help and I stood back and just watched another train wreck and I love my wife we were married 21 years she was the the best mom and wife I could possibly have had and then watching another person throw their hands up and give in not give up she gave in I mean my wife fought probably the best that she could have and she eventually her body just quit and when she When she passed away, she weighed 80 pounds and was in a wheelchair and she was 46 years old. And so on June 29th of last year, nine months ago, I buried my wife of 46 years. And so where I'm going with all this is I, I submit to people when I speak to them that I'm candid and sincere about this. I'm a better human being today than I was before all this happened. And I've found ways in my practices that I've developed myself that I now, now I talk to people about this living undeterred mindset that I've kind of, you know, I don't, I won't say developed none of, none of what I have is new. I've just repackaged it to, to something that works for me. Sure. And so, you know, if this guy from Iowa that's never made honor roll in college, I'm not overly smart, um, can, can pull this off. Well, then so can you, I mean, so can anybody. And so what I spend, what I spend my time on now is talking to people about, again, changing the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. So what's changing the narrative? Well, stigmas, labels, the way we approach things, the way we view things, uh, those are all important things. So that's my story. And that's where I'm at. I started a podcast last January called Living Undeterred. And I talk every day to people that have just amazing stories. And in sharing my story, I have learned that it opens the gate of permission for others to share their stories.
0: Absolutely. And that's a beautiful,
1: it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, to cry as a grown man in front of people isn't humiliating. It isn't shameful. That, that uh, takes I, courage.
0: I, that takes courage and bravery.
1: It does, but you do it enough, and it just becomes a bodily function. It becomes something that I need to like use the restroom to cleanse my body. It's the same thing as crying for me. It's just I need it. I embrace it. I lean into it. You know, and these are all little tiny, you know, metaphors that I like to use, like leaning into it.
0: Well, you know, you're so that- you're out there helping people, Jeff, but by the same token, you're also helping yourself.
1: No question. Uh, Ron, you know, when you're in an airplane and you hit turbulence, what's the first thing the stewardess says? She says, when the oxygen comes down, put it on yourself first before you help anyone else. Right. You're exactly right. Well, you just said people think I'm doing something heroic. I'm not. I'm selfish. I'm doing this to save Jeff Johnston because I am no good as a dad to my other two boys if I'm dead. So so sure, right. I'm helping people, but like you said so, so eloquently, Ron, I, I am selfishly helping myself with this journey and projects I'm doing because I want to live a great life. I don't want to live a, I don't want to die and I don't want to be in, I don't want to be
0: in full of pain and suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeff, what inspired you to share your story publicly? What, what was the no, inspiration? I, think
1: I ran into some pushback. Um, there were certain family members that weren't too thrilled about me sharing my story. There, there was this perception I was making money or something, and I've never made a penny on anything. I've my book's been a losing financial proposition. That's why I never count how many books I've sold. Um, I just know what's in my nonprofit because all my profits go into my nonprofit, sure. which isn't which isn't much, you know. And uh, what is in there is mostly my money anyway that I put in myself. Um, so you know. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, it's, a, it's a combination of many things, I guess I would say.
0: Okay. Because uh, I had a light bulb moment when I shared my cancer story, uh, started doing it publicly. Uh, I, I told someone that I had, that I was going in for cancer surgery. And they said, what kind of cancer? And I said, uh, breast cancer. Hmm. And, they, and they started laughing. And they said, you're joking, right? I said, no, I'm not joking. And it, it was like a light bulb, like, hey, wait a minute. Other people shouldn't have to go through this because I heard about, you know, the stigma. And,
1: yeah, you know, exactly. Woman's
0: disease and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> then the breast too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there that don't understand that. And right. you know, and, and it it's bad because... Uh again, like what you were saying, some men go, oh, you know, it's the victim thing. You know, yeah. I'm a victim of this. And, uh, you know, they think they're freaks and that kind of thing. And so they don't go in for when they should go in and get treated and that kind of thing. So that was that was my inspiration, uh, how I did that. So I was just curious what what your inspiration was. But moving along, uh, the opioid crisis resulting in poisoning uh, not so much overdosing anymore; it's getting worse. What is your opinion on the cause, the mental health aspect, and what is your opinion on what we can do to reverse the trend?
1: Well, the cause part, I'll I'll talk about first because okay. there's a lot of moving parts there, and you'll have to rem- you'll have to remind me of the second half of the question because I'll right. inevitably forget. Will do um, so. The cause part, you know, I think um, there's a shift in the paradigm right now. It's like when my son died, um, fentanyl fentanyl had been around for a little while. I mean, my son was in 2016, but I know parents that have lost kids in 13 and 14. And so it goes back a little bit, but you know, my son was trying to get high with heroin. You know, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to die. And the amount of fentanyl that can kill you is like, can go on the tip of a pencil. It isn't much. And, you know, I think most people are pretty aware that drug dealers aren't pharmacists. They don't know how to cut, you know, fentanyl correctly. And it's, it's just ironic because they are putting it in these things that are killing their customers. But the, prob- the the thing is, is that fentanyl increases the potency of the high. And so addicts, and I've never done drugs my entire life, but I understand the concept of a high because I'm a compulsive gambler. And I understand chasing the next win or the loss. I mean, it's the same type of thing as an addict. And so uh, I don't do that anymore, but when I did, I certainly could relate to somebody trying to ratchet up the high. So fentanyl's added, increased the potency. Um, you know, the, the microdosing element of it is, is, um, an, an issue as well, because like I said, drug dealers don't have pharmaceutical licenses to cut this stuff. So they're just, right. they're in the woods of Colombia, you know, the jungles of Columbia cutting these, this stuff. And, uh, so, but the paradigm shift is interesting, Ron, because back when my son died, you know, it, it was like, well, you know, he was, he should have known better. He knew that it was, you know, Russian roulette. He was an addict, you know, it was almost a stigma like, well, it sucks, Jeff, but you know, he kind of, he kind of earned it, you know, and, and that's just a ridiculous stigma that's, you know, that's just comes from someone very naive. It doesn't understand. Nobody earns to nobody earns it. He was just looking to get high. He wasn't trying to die. No different than no different than the guy sitting on the couch watching the Super Bowl drinking a 12 pack. Right. He doesn't die. Or the guy eating pizza at halftime. He doesn't die. Those can all be unhealthy things too. So I I just think that stigma is ridiculous. So what's happened, Ron, is fentanyl now shows up. And now you're having people dying that have never done drugs. That aren't addicts, that aren't the substance abusers, and that's the paradigm shift, and that's where this "one pill kills" uh, campaign that's out there right now. Forty-two percent of the pills on, on the market today are counterfeit; they're they're made in, you know, the jungles or made in the the, the back uh, press rooms where they press these pills. Forty-two percent, so almost half the pills out there on the market, and and those are pills that have enough fentanyl in them. To potentially kill a human,
0: so we're talking about pills that are illegally bought,
1: right? Right, that, um, illegally it, made in ille- illegally made, and, and we bought.
0: and we know that they use uh, fentanyl, from what I understand, as a filler mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I guess it's cheap, and that's what. Yeah. They- so
1: one thing I like to cover, if it's okay, if I can jump a little bit to uh, something I, I I'm really interested in. Sure. Is when, when this all happened with me, with my son, you know, the first reaction was to me to go after the drug cartels, you know, like Rambo, you know, go out there and go right to the source. And then it was go after big pharma, Jeff, you know, and, and obviously there's a lot of emphasis on that. And actually the, the amount of opioids prescribed by doctors in the last decade has been cut 50%. So we yeah. have taken a lot of pills off the market, but the deaths have gone up equally, right. dropped 50, up 50 So it's being replaced by something else. And that's probably what to expect when fentanyl gets off the street. We'll just, they'll be replaced by something else. We're always going to have these issues. And Jeff,
0: I understand that we lose in the United States about a hundred thousand people a year to this.
1: It's the number one killer of Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. Wow. Over COVID, over cancer, over uh, suicide the number one death in Americans from 18 to 45 is overdose right now in the United States. Wow. Which is shocking because people assume that suicide and, and alcohol deaths and all right. COVID and all those things are more, but it's, it's uh it's uh, overdose. So going back to what I was talking about, about the demand side, I mean, the supply side, so we can chase the, the drug dealers and the, and the uh, big pharma and and a lot of people are doing that and we have to do this because it's a multifaceted approach to change this whole issue. But where I really want to spend my time, you know, for me, where I'm most passionate about is the why behind people doing these things in the first
0: place. Right. right. I mean, but if you're
1: not do if you're not doing drugs, then you, it doesn't matter if there's fentanyl in, in, in the pill that you're about to take because you're not going to take it. Exactly. So. I mean, it matters obviously for the next person who takes it, but I'm, what I'm doing is I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the demand side. If we could get the demand down, obviously drugs are here because there's a demand form, you know, I mean, that's the old supply and demand. So if we can, if we can have an emphasis on this, on the demand side, trying to reduce the desire for people to do these things, coupled with reducing the supply, then I think we have a really good chance of down the road, you know, five, 10, 15 years. I mean, this isn't going to happen overnight. Uh, Then I think we have a chance. And so for me, I want to get to the kids, Ron. Right. I want to develop programs. I have an initiative right now. It's called the Don't Start Initiative. And I use the acronym ABC. And the A stands for awareness. B stands for breathing. And C stands for choice. And what I've developed is a program for a child in a very quick moment. So Ron, you offer me a vape at a football game and I'm in eighth grade, right? I've got like 10 seconds, right? I can't call mom. My counselor's not not there. My teacher's not there. I have to learn on my feet to get out of this situation. So what I've done is I'm, I'm trying to get this into schools and I'm trying to promote this. It's called the don't start initiative and the acronym is ABC. The A is awareness. So The child just needs to be aware that they're in the situation that their mom and dad told him about, you know, now I'm here. I knew this was coming. Mom and dad told me now I'm here. So awareness is the first thing. The second thing is breathing. I've learned through meditation. I meditate 20 minutes every day. It's one of my coping mechanisms. I learn through meditation. When I get my breathing down, good things happen. I become more aware. I don't overthink, I don't think as necessarily at all. I breathe slowly, I'm better making decisions. So, if a child can learn and here's the catch, breathe through your nose. You can't you cannot talk when you're breathing through your nose. That's true. So, if if you if you are a child and now you are aware you're in a position Breathe through your nose gives you time to think you're not once you if you're talking, you can't think at the same time very well, right? Breathe through your nose, one deep breath, and then choose make your choice. But just remember whatever you choose to do, there's a consequence. So, and then I'm going to try to teach kids simple outs. Like I'm on medication or you got like two or three standard uh, excuses that you can use. Um, and ultimately it's best if the kid just says, no, I'm not doing it. But we know as parents that that doesn't happen.
0: You know, a long time ago, somebody told me the best thing to tell your, your child is, oh, I can't do that. I like to do it, but my mom drug tests me all the time.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and you just need a split second to get out of it, you know? And so that's, I don't know. Those are some of the things I'm trying to work on as we progress with uh, this living undeterred mission that I'm on.
0: Well, that, that, that ABC is a great thing. Um Let's move on to the next question. You have a blog and a website. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, actually, I did the blog for a year and I decided to stop the blog because it got I've got too many projects going right now. And what was happening was my producer that I have for my show and uh, she helps me with all my marketing. Uh, I was just basically going right to the deadline. And then I was getting sloppy and quickly writing blogs and I thought, you know what? The moment that this becomes work, I don't want to do it. So I stopped writing my blogs. So I did a year's worth of blogs. The blogs are great. They're video, they're audio. They're, they're great. Some of them are 15 minutes long. My best blog on my podcast on my website is called drown the beast. And it's a 15 minute blog that I did in my own voice. That is about, you know, um, about choosing not to drink basically. And, and the battle and the fight that people have with alcoholism. And it's, it's, it's a good blog, but I was spending a lot of time writing them and producing them and stuff that I figured, you know, I've kind of evolved into something different. So the podcast is great. I love the living uninsert podcast. I'm meeting people every day, um, around the country that have been through, through, you know, different types of grief. And, and I think one thing that I've learned on this journey, Ron, is it's easy to compare griefs. It's easy to sit there and say, well, Jeff's lost two people. I haven't so Jeff kind of deserves to be more miserable than me and I'm like you know it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way grief is grief and and we all handle it differently and right. uh, you know um and so I've kind of stopped you know comparing cuz early on I would you know meet someone that had cancer and had brain surgery and then someone had a, a child lost by suicide and then you know and now it's like we're all in this mental health boat together and and that that's a really key key point for me as I kind of move forward and and start working with collaborating with people is that, you know, our stories are unique to us. And the other thing, Ron, is everybody has a story. I mean, a day doesn't go by where I meet a stranger and I start telling my story and then immediately they start telling theirs. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: Everybody does have a story.
1: Yeah. We just got to talk. We just got to talk more.
0: This is just something I asked you before we went on the air uh, and and you, you weren't too aware of it, but I found this out uh, on my own doing some research and that's about uh, people buying these drugs on what they call the dark web. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've all heard, heard the term dark web. Yeah. Well, apparently there's a browser out there. The name of the browser, unlike Google or you know, one of those, it's called T-O-R. So the only reason I'm bringing it it up is if people want to check their kids, you know, browsers on their phone or whatever, if you see T-O-R, it means they're using that to get on the dark web. And Hmm. apparently the dark web is not a good thing. And they're also uh, using a lot of Bitcoin to buy buy these drugs.
1: You want to hear the most the scariest thing out there. If I was a parent, yeah, this is, this to me, this most, the scariest thing and is Snapchat right now and the ability for kids to buy drugs off of Snapchat. And it is said right now, based on the DEA's math that at any given time, there are 80 to 90,000 drug dealers working Snapchat to sell drugs to kids and these are middle school kids. And what they're doing is they're using code. So, you know, Snapchat will flag if someone says fentanyl or cocaine or something, you know, they, they can flag that conversation like Google does as well, you know. And yeah. now these these drug dealers are using uh, like pictographs like the Egyptians use. They're using, you know, pictures decode certain words for types of drugs and I I have a number of different uh, stories that I've run across where um, I have a, a good friend of mine that was on my podcast and, and I was on hers that she was actually on Dr. Phil a couple of weeks ago. Um, Amanda Faith's her name and her son Luca died at 13. He bought Percocet on the internet. And, and thought it was uh percocet and it wasn't and and parents are going now come on there's no way but the reality is it's happening and drug dealers are now moving into the mobile space and if parents are naive on these things and you think drugs now are being bought on the corner street corner like maybe you bought them when you were in high school it's coming in the mail now it's different it's a completely different deal um and uh you know that that to me is what's scary about the drugs but the real mission I'm on is, is a little bit more encompassing and that's the mental health initiative. And that's, that's this, um, this tour that we're embarking on here in 50 days. Yeah. It's, we're going
0: to, we're going to get to that.
1: Yeah. Yep. And that, and that's a mental health because I look at mental health as the wheel and overdose, alcoholism, gambling addiction, sex abuse, uh, sex addi- addiction, um, depression, anxiety. Those are spokes on the mental health wheel. Right. And so for me, as an advocate, I think to be the most effective and where I get my most value from is focusing on the mental health aspect. But I know we have to get into each individual topic, but my fear is that we spend so much time eradicating fentanyl that these same kids have other underlying mental health issues that aren't being addressed, and then
0: they end up dying for other reasons, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, you wrote a book. This one's for you. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I wrote the book as a to honor my son, and my wife was still alive at the time. Uh, you know, and she she wasn't overly excited about me doing this. Um, a lot of people uh, on, on that side of the family weren't overly excited because they the intent wasn't clear, and uh, I think they thought maybe I was doing this some way to profit and. Obviously, that's not, that wasn't the case. Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to honor, the other thing, the other person was my son, Seth, when he died, he, three weeks after he died, his daughter was born.
0: Oh, wow. So
1: I have a beautiful granddaughter named Brighton. She's five now.
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: Yeah. And she's just, she's been, she's been, I always say, Hey, Brighton, you brighten my life. That's my saying to her. Yeah. But you know, when she was born, it was difficult because my wife and I had different opinions on how to get involved. And she was dealing with her own demons at the time. She didn't have enough space in her in her life to, you know, take in somebody else. So there was a couple of years there where I didn't even meet Brighton. And now I love her to death. I pick her up every once a couple of times a week. I take her to swim lessons. And so I guess talking about the book, you know, part of the Honoring the book, the first sentence I have in there talks about Brighton, and that's the only time in the whole book I talk about Seth's child. Um, so the the book is a is an interesting uh, journey, Ron, because I start off in the abyss. I start off with the day Seth died. I start off with all that happened. I go through. Then the second chapter is called Seth, and I write about Seth about coaching him in basketball and all the all the great things that happened when he was a child and growing up. And then, then I get into things about his legal troubles and all the other stuff. And then, and then I talk about some of the really great things that we did as a family. My middle son's a college golfer and he raised $50,000 through golf in high school to set aside for kids battling substance abuse. And he got so much, uh, Focus on that CBS Sports came out to our house for four days and did a documentary uh, on my son. And it's on the internet. If you just Google Ian Johnston, it's I A N. So Ian Johnston, and then CBS Sports, you'll see the nine minute documentary. And it's actually narrated by Zach Johnson, who's the Ryder Cup captain for the United States golf team this wow. year. And wow. Zach's from our hometown. And Ian played golf uh, two summers in a row with Zach and Zach's very familiar with our story and he was a big help for promoting what Ian was doing and then Ian won uh, a national award to the American Junior Golf Association they picked one junior golfer in the world male or female to win this humanitarian award and they picked my son and all this came out of his brother dying and there's another example of the better not not bitter road where my right. son my sons both my sons took what I said that day and they have embodied it and so even though there's some casualties in my family, there's also some heroic stories that have, that have happened since all this happened. So I can look people in the eye, Ron, and I can honestly say that I'm a better human being today than I was before this all happened. But living undeterred doesn't mean living untested. So I'm tested every single day. Absolutely. Every day. And I fully expect to be tested every day the rest of my life. But I'm ready. I have at some point I want to talk to you about the living undeterred mindset foundation, my three tenants.
0: Yeah, we're gonna we're we're definitely gonna get in that. And yep. I, I love the way you you took that pain and you and you changed it into purpose. And I, I talk about that a lot. Okay, so let's get to it. You are doing the living undeterred tour this spring. Mm-hmm what is what is it about where will you be and what's the objective of the tour
1: well the way i'm going to start every presentation on the tour is with my quote that has now been ingrained into my soul and that's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal and that's on the back of our t-shirts it's on my coffee mugs it's on all of our marketing materials for the tour it's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And that's that's what drives me. And the tour idea came from, I saw a guy riding his bike across the state that he lived in, raising money for, ironically, for breast cancer, but it was for his wife. And it dawned on me, that's yeah, a great idea. I love what the guy's doing. Obviously, this guy wouldn't be doing this if his wife didn't have breast cancer. So sure. for him, it got personal, right? Just that's like how mine. Kind of-
0: that's, how, yeah. that's how I got it. I wouldn't be that- here talking to you. Right that's a how we all get into
1: these things right by personal but some of us become a passion other of us becomes a, actually becomes a cancer it also becomes a curse and i got to make sure people understand that anything that happens to us there's a quote i like to say do do things happen to you or do things happen for
0: you i use that same quote i love it yeah
1: i love me it too. so you know, it's, it's, you know, that's how you have to look at life. So anyway, I, I saw this guy doing this and I thought, well, I don't want to ride across Iowa. And I was too small. And so I stayed up all night. And again, this is a, this is a, an example of the beauty of attention deficit, which I have, <laughs> it, it's a superpower. I yeah. stayed up all night. I drew up a three page business plan to come up with this living under tour us tour. I didn't tell anyone about it because everyone would talk me out of it. And I thought, okay, I'm bored I don't like posting and sharing and everything on the internet. I don't want to write another book right now. My blogs, I'm, I stopped doing. What else can I do? Well, I want to go to where the problem is. And it's not behind a computer. Right. It's out there on the streets. So I went up to Camping World, which is 45 minutes away, walked in there with my business plan. And my, I had like seven copies of books I gave out to all the managers there. And they didn't know me from Adam. I just cold called, walked in. And I said, I want to buy an RV. I want to go around the country, every single state. I'm going to raise a million dollars, and I'm going to change the narrative of mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. And they're like, "Okay, sure." <laughs> you know, who's this <laughs> insane guy? And I said, I want to work a deal with you to get a disc, get a price knocked off an RV, and I'll buy it. You know, so they did. They became my what I, I they became my sponsor. Now I just made up this term, platinum national platinum national sponsor. I didn't have one at the time. I just made it up, and that's what I anointed them as. And so Camping World is now my platinum national sponsor. that oh, sounds owner. good, Jeff. It yeah, sounds I'm a, great. I'm the proud owner of a 34-foot RV. Uh, I just got, I just picked it up on Monday. It's all fully loaded. It's ready to go. We're doing podcasts, live streams, everything. And what I'm going to do is we've got 32 states already signed on. And I leave on May 7th from, this, from Cedar Rapids here. We have our kickoff with the mayor going to be supporting us. And what I want to do, Ron, is I want to go around the United States for 95 days with my two boys, and I have another uh, friend of mine going who's a keynote speaker. His name's Antarctic Mike, and then we have a documentary crew going too, because there's some people that think that this thing can be, you know, be big, but that's not my goal. But sure. my goal—it's their goal, not mine. And so, um, but what we have it set up is we have state partners. So you're in Jacksonville, right? Right. Okay, Florida right now. Is probably right now set up to be my best state that we have. Well, I have. We I welcome have you to the Sunshine State. Well, I have a stop in Fort Lauderdale. I have okay. the Broward County Op- Opioid Project on board with United Way, and they're going to be our sponsor in Fort Lauderdale. And then I go to Tampa, and I have the Live Tampa Bay Coalition, which is like 40 nonprofits, and they're supporting me there. So um, I only have one stop in each state, except for Florida, California, and Texas, where we're doing two. So Florida, I'm already booked, but certainly, you know, if you can make it to Tampa, um, that's closer to you than, uh, than Fort Lauderdale, um, Um, come on down. I'd love to meet you. Um, you know, enjoy the day. And what, what it's about is I'm going to pull the RV up. It's going to be fully wrapped living undeterred us tour. It's going to stimulate a lot of conversation and I've got, um, uh, an hour presentation, where I'm going to speak for about 40 minutes. And then I'm asking a local advocate to come up to the stage and share their story. So somebody like me, that's in the area, that's lost a loved one, that's got a dog in the hunt, that's passionate, maybe runs a nonprofit, give them a chance to talk about their own uh, program right there in their backyard. And then the real fun part is going to be the panel discussion and that's the hour after the speaking engagements where we're having a panel discussion, myself, a clinician from the state partner, um, maybe another dad or a mom or somebody. And then one of my boys is going to sit in the panel discussion. And what I want to do, Ron, is turn this into a town hall. I want to okay. just answer questions. I want to just sit there and have people fire questions at me. And then my son asked my son how he handled this as a 13 year old losing a brother, you know, and really make this an intimate emotional experience for people. And it's really important to me that this whole tour is an exploration of ideas, not me explaining the way things are, because I certainly don't know that much. But if I keep an open mind, and if I'm willing to listen to every single person out there, It's got a story to tell. And then I'm doing my podcast show on the road. We're doing live streams. We've got all these really cool projects going. And I want the spotlight to get off of me. I want this to be about we, and that's my objective. And so people hear about the tour and they think, oh, it's this guy going around promoting his cause. Now I'm I'm not doing that. I think that's going to happen anyway, but I want to promote our cause. I want to talk about, The 676 Americans that die each day from overdose, suicide, and alcohol combined. So think about that, Ron. 676 Americans. And you think of one death like Seth and think of the ripple effect. I mean, Seth's death cost me my wife. She died because of that. Sure. And think of all the other relationships that are adversely affected my granddaughter will grow up never having a dad her natural dad so that one decision that one death on one street in one city one county one state and there's 676 a day think of the ripple effects of the generational and and the and the collateral damage and that's the power of the story that i'm going to be sharing when i'm out there is that i'm starting every presentation with this if you've been touched by an opioid overdose or somebody that's died from a drug overdose, stand up. People stand up. Anybody that's lost someone that loved or knew somebody from suicide, stand up. Anyone else in your lost anyone to alcohol abuse, stand up. I bet you I'm going to have 85% of every crowd stand up. Yeah, no doubt. I could stand up on all three.
0: So I would say the crux of this, it's, it's awareness. Mm-hmm. It, it's awareness that that you're bringing, and and people are listening to other people, and and just trying to change the narrative on mental health, the stigma. Would that be yeah, part because of it?
1: changing the narrative is one of the parts of my speech, and I talk about what changing the narrative actually means. Actually, yeah. I actually have my speech in front of me, and I have end stigma and labels, conversation, being vulnerable. Uh Johan Harry in his books Chasing the Scream said the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connectivity. And if you think about that, there's a lot of value in that. Is you can be sober and be miserable and on on, and unhappy. Right. Sobriety is no guarantee that your life's going to be any better, it just means you're sober. Right. So connectivity is the key, having human conversation like you sure. and I are doing right now. Right. People listening to your podcast, you know that's connectivity. Um, and so that those are some important things that, that we're going to share. And then whatever money I raise over this 95 days, and, and my goal's a million, and I, I have to think I'm going to do more than that. I'm giving 50% of it back to all the state partners that supported me during this project. And then the other 50% is going into my
0: nonprofit. That's, that's fantastic. I wish you all the best. I just want to ask you one question uh, mm-hmm. about the government. What can our government do to attack the problem? Uh, it, it just doesn't seem like we're hearing enough about it. And like you said, it's taking 100,000 lives a year.
1: I'm going to give you an answer that probably is not going to go over well with a lot of your listeners and for most people. This isn't right. a government right. problem. I don't. I don't think the government is going to do anything, and it's not because I don't have trust in the government. I have more trust in people. I have more trust in our own ability to fix this problem. If okay. we wait for the government, so let's say let's say fentanyl is eradicated. Yeah, you're telling me that all of a sudden people are going to stop doing drugs. Good point.
0: You're They're right. going to
1: go to something else. Prohibition didn't work. I mean, there's evidence out there that. That, that taking stuff away or informing us more isn't going to work. I mean, think about this for a minute. Every single thing we eat, everything has a label on it with 800 things that are bad on the label. So exactly. you, everything, a bottle of water has a label. Give me a break. There's nothing in water, but it's got a label. Yet, even though everything we eat tells us how bad things are for us, we're still 60% obese as a country, and we're the heaviest industrial country in the world, and we're getting fatter but we're getting smarter we know more about all this but we're not it's not working so it isn't it isn't the government it isn't it isn't labels it isn't telling us what not to do it's it's our inability to do with what we should be doing with the information that's out there you can't tell me that people don't know drugs are bad they do Smoking's bad the label on, on a package of cigarettes takes up the whole cigarette box but people still smoke So I don't think the government's going to do anything. I I just think we got to stop wanting the government to come help us. I think we got to say, you know what? Look in the mirror. There's your government. Fix your own life. Fix your problem. Uh, If you're drinking, try to get sober. If you're addicted to drugs, go get help. Um, If you're depressed, try to find a way to get out of your depression. But don't wait for anyone to help you. You know, I, I don't think anyone's going to help you. And if they did try to help you, if you're an addict, you're not going to listen to them anyway. Good
0: point. Good point. Jeff, what tips do you have for parents out there to prevent their children from experimenting with drugs and alcohol? any tips?
1: Well, you know what the that's tough because two reasons kids get into drugs and alcohol are the the first one is exp, is experiment is um exploring and the other is escaping. So I'll take experimenting and off the table and'll I'll say exploring. Okay. so the two the two core reasons why kids get into, uh, these issues drugs and alcohol is either they're escaping something personal trauma abusive household you know the stress of school or they're just exploring my alcohol abuse Ron started because I wanted to explore I didn't start drinking in eighth grade because I was depressed or I was down I mean I was I was popular I was getting decent grades I was an athlete I, I really I came from a good house I wasn't abused so I wasn't, I wasn't escaping anything. I was just bored, curious. So I think parents need to understand the motivations why kids do these things. Not all of the kids doing these things are doing them for the same reasons. But I think the reality is sit down with your kids, tell them the two roads, example. Talk about the don't start initiative, the awareness, breathing, choosing. And then the bottom line is, here's the deal. I've lived my life. I'm 55. You're 17. You're 15. You're going to pave your own way. But just remember one thing, son. Choices precede consequences. Choices before consequences. If you remember that? Then when you're confronted with those decisions that seem little decisions, they always add up to big results you know?
0: Yeah. Excellent tips. Excellent. Jeff, what excites you the most going forward with your advocacy? Hmm. I,
1: I would say the, the, the regular daily feedback I get from everybody I talk to that I'm making a difference. And even though I feel like I'm not you know, which sounds surprising, but sometimes I sit here at night in my studio and I look around and I think, am I, is this really, am I really making a difference? You know, I question that even, even up to this moment, I question it sometimes. So I think when I get feedback from people, I get those emails, I get the handwritten notes, I get the calls, the texts that just keeps me going. That adds fuel to my fire. But at the end of the day, I cannot let my remaining two boys see their dad crumble and someone asked me the other day on a podcast who's your favorite superhero like your marvel superhero yeah and i said i'm going to answer this but i don't want to sound like a narcissist but i don't have a superhero it's my dad but i want to be a superhero to my boys you know i don't i don't superman batman i'm not into that stuff i don't watch any of those shows and uh I just have never been an interest in fiction. I, li- I, like non- I, like, um, I like nonfiction. I like documentaries. I like real life stories. And when I was asked that question, I said my dad was my superhero. And then I said, I want to be a superhero to my boys. They can't afford to lose somebody else. I mean, they're, I mean think about this. I'm 55, Ron, and I just buried my mom. I had so many great years with my mom. She died just uh, in November. My boys don't have a mom and they're 20 and 18.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: they lost their older brother. I've got my two older brothers still alive. So right. I can't relate. I can't relate to what my boys are going through. Yeah. But they
0: certainly need me to be strong. Absolutely. That was a great answer you gave that fella. Uh, Jeff, how can people contact you? They want to get a hold of well, you. Lo- well, lots of we ways.
1: Yeah, okay. our website, the main website is
0: www.livingundeterred.com.
1: So www.livingundeterred.com. The tour information is on that site, but okay. the tour also has its own website. That's www.livingundetoured.com So it's a play of words, Undetoured T-O-U-R-D.com. Oh, gotcha. That's the tour website. And then people can email me. It's just Jeff at livingundeterred.com.
0: Okay. I'm going to list all that information in the podcast notes. I want to thank you, Jeff, for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your story and educating us, educating us on this important topic. Uh, you, you show so much courage and bravery doing your advocacy work. It is not easy to be vulnerable publicly, and your work is a godsend. I wish you nothing but success going forward in, in your mission of helping others and uh, good health and happiness to you and your family. Comments and suggestions uh, to improve the podcast, you can email me at itsarapwithwrap at gmail.com. Our website is rap com. Our Facebook page and group, uh, the group is growing very nicely. It's a wrap with rap Instagram, it's a wrap with rap podcast. All the episodes on YouTube, it's a wrap. With RAP, the podcast uncut. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.